Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, March 1st. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And this week begins our four-part series for industry focus on SPACs. That's right. Every Monday on our financial show for the next four weeks, we're going to dig into the what's and the why's, the puts and the takes. We'll dig into several SPACs either on the market or getting ready to hit the market. And we'll even have a few interviews along the way as well. Speaking of interviews, this week we're kicking off with an interview. Payoneer is a fintech company that delivers a suite of services, including cross-border payments, working capital, tax solutions, and risk management for its customers worldwide. The company boasts customers, including Amazon and Airbnb, among others. This week, our own Matt Frankel got to chat with the CEO of Payoneer, Scott Gallup, about the company and its journey to the public markets. We hope you enjoy their conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. We talked about uh, Payoneer on the show a few weeks ago when you first announced your, that you're going public. Um, but for those who aren't really familiar with your business, um, Payoneer's mostly known for its um, cross-border uh, services. What, can you guys kind of give us a, a brief overview of what Payoneer does in the fintech space? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the basics of it are really that when you think about how technology is really changing how all of us engage in commerce, what we see is that it's actually making it so businesses all over the world in a digital world have all kinds of new opportunities and all kinds of new challenges. And so what Payoneer has built is a global financial platform that really focuses on providing services to make it possible for any business of any size, from the biggest Silicon Valley tech company all the way through the smallest small business owner in emerging markets to build and grow their digital business. And we provide them with cross-border payments, Matt, as you said. We provide them with working capital. We provide them with all kinds of services to actually make it easier for them to build and grow and manage their, their businesses. And so, uh, so that's what we do, is really we empower any business of any size to build and grow their digital business uh, in our global digital world. So when we heard um, the latest results from MasterCard and Visa a couple weeks ago, I saw that the weakest part of their report by far was cross-border payments. Um, international travel is just not a thing yeah. right now. So how has COVID um, impacted your business, being that that's one of your big focus areas? Yeah, so it's a great question, and I think you actually really highlighted, and I think if you go back and look at uh, Visa and MasterCard as well, I think they'll talk about this that there's actually an important difference between cross-border payments related to travel and cross-border payments related to digital commerce. And actually what they have reported is significant growth in cross-border e-commerce activity, which hasn't grown fast enough to offset how big their business was around travel uh, and cross-border. And so for us, we're actually the opposite the vast majority of our business related to cross-border is with people and businesses that aren't traveling, they're operating where they operate, and they're doing business with partners and customers around the world. And we've seen that actually accelerate. 
we've had a part of our business that actually did relate to travel, and that part has suffered uh, a little bit along with some of those other companies like you mentioned Visa and MasterCard where travel has been hit. But we've really seen an acceleration of digital commerce trends around cross-border, and we think that's really a permanent shift in how the business world is working. So how big of an opportunity do you see in cross-border payments specifically before I get to the, you know, kind of the bigger picture of your business? Oh, I mean, it's absolutely gigantic. I mean, it's tens of trillions of dollars a year that are moving around the world between and among trading partners. Uh, And in practice, the way that money moves hasn't changed in more than a generation in any meaningful way. It still largely is moving around the world as wires. And really what we've looked to do is modernize the way businesses are able to transact with each other in much the way technology is modernizing the way we kind of have the interfaces and the way we actually are communicating and interacting. So go ahead. I, I'm sorry, I went a little bit further than I meant to on the uh, the market size, but it's gigantic. It's one of the biggest markets in the world. No, that actually really leads into the next question really nicely. So um, I read in the the press release announcing your deal that you guys processed about $44 billion of payments last year. Yeah. Um, and your customer list includes some pretty impressive names. I saw, uh, I think, uh, Amazon, uh, Airbnb are, are some of your customers, for example, um, if, I'm, if I'm quoting those correctly. So- it Got sounds it. like it's been a pretty impressive story so far. Um, we know the market size is huge, but Payoneer specifically, how does it grow from here and how big of an opportunity do you see for you? Yeah, so that's what we're so excited about. Uh, you mentioned a few of the the bigger household names that we work with, but actually, in addition to some of those kind of great companies that everybody's really aware of, digital leaders uh, around the world. And we work with nine of the top 20 most highly valued companies in the world by market cap to give a sense of some of the big ones. But actually, what gets us most excited uh, is the small businesses around the world that we work with. And, And there are literally hundreds of millions of small businesses around the world Uh, that if you think about it now, as the world is digitalizing, have opportunities to participate in digital commerce in ways that they didn't before and have opportunities to participate in cross-border digital commerce that they didn't before. And so we're just scratching the surface. I mean, you know, we're now up to over 5 million small businesses, enterprises, and marketplaces that we've worked with in our history. Uh, But we see literally hundreds of millions of small businesses and billions of people that are now actually connected to opportunities in a digital world. And we've really become an on-ramp for folks in many parts of the world to actually access and take advantage of these new opportunities that the digital world is creating. So um, the whole theme of today's show, um, the whole hour is kind of the SPAC show, which is one of the reasons we're excited you're here. Um, Obviously, you went public for, in part at least, to raise some capital because growth costs money. Um, Why did you choose a SPAC as opposed to the traditional route? Yeah, great question, and uh, and again, thrilled to have the chance to be part of your uh, your show about SPACs. Um, 
For us, it was a few things. I mean, one, uh, you know, and I used to take companies public for a living. I was an investment banker many years ago, and uh, and we have folks on our board who, for example, are on the board of Spotify, which which shows a direct listing as opposed to a traditional IPO. So, as we had thought about the path to the public markets, we went into it pretty open minded. Uh, having in mind some of the positives and negatives of each of the different paths available. And when we thought about SPAC, there are a few things. One, uh, as we were coming out of COVID, we realized that actually we had a bit of noise in our numbers last year and that the ability to share projections as part of the process was actually going to be a really important tool for us to use to actually make sure the investment community really understood our story, the positive growth trends coming as a result of some of the digital trends from COVID and also some of the trade-offs and challenges that we felt last year. Uh, another was pricing certainty. So the ability to kind of pull that part of the process forward and make sure that we actually had the deal that we felt was fair and that it was actually validated by public market investors through the pipe before we went through the whole rest of the process was something that we thought was an important step for us to take. Um, access to a large pool of capital, which you already touched on. I mean, this was a large SPAC. I don't know that we would have seriously considered one that was small. And so for us, that was important to get a lot of capital because of what we see is so, so many growth opportunities. And then the partner. Uh, I, I don't know how much time you spent with Betsy Cohen uh, and folks on her team. She's terrific. Uh, and it really was uh, a great opportunity to partner with someone that I respect, uh, have known for many years uh, on a really important next step for us. So one of the questions that I, I'm asked a lot because I talk about SPACs pretty often on the show. Um, when the SPAC merger is completed, the existing management team usually stays in place. I mean, I assume you're still going to be CEO after the, the, the merger. That's um, the plan, yeah. So. <laughs> but, so what role does the, uh, the, the SPAC play? I know Betsy Cohen is a, a banking heavyweight. So what kind of role does the, 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 um, the SPAC sponsor play after the deal is completed? Yeah, they really are there as advisors uh, and sh important shareholders, basically, going forward. And so our interests are aligned uh, around creating value for customers and value for our shareholders. Uh, but they're not involved in actively managing the business. If there are needs, if there were a reason for us to look to supplement talent or things like that, they can be helpful. But for the most part, uh, they're bringing their expertise and advice around the management at the board level and as an important investor uh, with interests very, very much aligned. So why did it take you till 2020 to go public is my next, uh, or 20, I guess 2021 now. <laughs> why did it, I, I saw that you had uh, originally planned to go public in 2020, but then, you know, COVID. Um, and then, but um, the, the growth numbers were impressive before that. So why, why wait so long? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, frankly, me, uh, to be very candid, um, you know, we started to have some discussions at the board and investor level several years ago, and we've certainly had bankers for years talk to us about our ability to be a, a good public company and the path to get there. And 
you know, as I, I touched on before, you know, for me, it's the, the uh, being public isn't the end. It's a new beginning. It's a next chapter. And every step we take like that, there are positives and negatives to it. And for me, for quite some time, uh, I always like to focus on our customers. I like to focus on long-term strategies. I like to focus on long-term value creation. Uh, I like to focus on making sure that we're able to create the right environment for our employees. And uh, and being public certainly can have an impact on changing your decision-making criteria, changing your time horizons that you're using to make decisions. Uh, and those were things that earlier on, I didn't think was the right trade-off for us. I felt that we were in a better position to manage our business with a long-term view as a private company. And what changed, we made an acquisition earlier last year. Uh, and so we saw the opportunity to make more acquisitions going forward, which is easier as a public company. Uh, and we saw the acceleration and changes of in kind of digital commerce happening with COVID. And we thought that this was actually the time. I mean, we, our team has done such a good job in building this platform, this global team, this global business. Uh, that this was the right time for us to put the foot on the gas and really get more resources and, and make it a, a bigger, bolder play going forward. And that the access to a large pool of capital and the resources a public market uh, path would, would open up for us was the right path. So it really was me more than anybody who was kind of the obstacle for a while to try to make sure we did it for the right reasons at the right time. So you just mentioned acquisitions as a way to grow going forward. I'm curious as to whether you see Pioneer's growth being growing its existing business lines, like cross-border payments, all the stuff you mentioned earlier, or adding new products and services and kind of growing a financial ecosystem, I guess you'd say. Yeah, a bit more the latter, uh, you know, and, and I think the acquisition we made last year, I think, is a, a pretty good illustration of how we think about this. Uh we have lots of customers that are selling across different channels and that we're asking us to help them with their web stores and the way they manage their uh, their online stores that consumers are buying from. And we hadn't been able to provide that for them. And so for a few years, we had thought that this was an area for us to focus on. And we decided that it would be best to acquire a really sophisticated technology platform that we could build around and deliver more for our customers. And so that's how we did it. We bought a company named Optile based in, in Munich, Germany uh, last year, literally closed you know February, right before COVID. Uh, and, uh, and that has been the catalyst for us to launch our merchant services uh, for our customers. And we started with our large customers and we're gonna roll out some services later this year for small customers. And I think that's more the way we'll think about it going Going forward. And again, there's a lot of different opportunities. That's part of what's so fun about being a global platform with so many great customers uh, around the world. They have a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges. And so we really think of ourselves as being their best partners. And so that means us helping them across an increasingly broad range of their opportunities and needs. So you just mentioned the business, uh, challenges of your customers. What do you see as your biggest challenges going forward? The fintech space has become let's say a lot more competitive over the past few years in particular. It's, you know, there's it, even with the SPAC boom, we're seeing a ton of fintechs going public and everyone has the, the solution. So um, what, what do you see as your biggest challenges in maintaining your, your leadership and what you what you do? Yeah, I, I think so two parts. I'll, I'll, 
So first, what I'd say, it's really us focusing and executing. You know, it's making sure that because there are so many different opportunities and, and there's we have so many customers in so many different places, it's making sure that we uh, continue to be thoughtful and strategic, make the right uh, decisions, focus on the right customers, and then execute well on delivering what our customers and new potential customers need. Um, and I think, you know, going back to your comment about, you know, lots of fintech companies, you know, coming out with the solution and, and I think about it along the lines of, you know, all of commerce is being changed and all commerce in general involves money uh, and all people and businesses have a wide range of financial needs. So when I think about fintech, I think about it as being among the biggest categories in the entire world from a business perspective. And so I think there's tons of room in cross-border payments, you know, multiply that by a factor of a hundred when you get into just FinTech overall and how big the universe of opportunity is, just how much the world is changing. And I've read estimates that there will be, you know, trillions of dollars of new market value created by FinTech companies. Uh, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but what you can see happening is that in an increasingly digital world, consumers and businesses are looking for increasingly digital ways to buy, to manage their money, and to engage in really all of their activities. And so it's not surprising that we're seeing kind of the financial infrastructure be remade and that fintech companies are actually among the, the folks that are actually looking to do that for consumers and businesses. So I think there's a long way to go for fintech. Um, and I think it's uh, you've seen it in the private markets with investment, and I think we'll see it in the public markets as well, that there's still lots and lots of room for growth and opportunity. So since you are going public, before I forget, um, you don't just look up Payoneer if, if someone wants to invest in you right now. They have to go through the, the SPAC at this point. Um, the SPAC you're going public through is called FTAC Olympus Acquisition. Um, I believe I have that correct. You, you uh, have that correct, yes. Ticker symbol is FTOC. Um, if someone wants to, and, um, when will, when do you anticipate the deal being done? When do you anticipate Leon Payoneer being a standalone public company? Yeah. Uh, our, our target is, uh, directionally around mid year, hopefully late second quarter. Uh, we do have some, uh, regulatory approvals that we need to get through. And so that's part of, uh, part of the process and among the steps on the journey. Uh, but that's the directional timeline. Excellent. And um, I know I have to let you go in a little while. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to, um, if you have any last words, anything you want people to know about your opportunity in fintech and anything we haven't covered yet. No, look, I, I, this has been terrific. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I think for me, it's first and foremost, when we, when we think about how technology, if you think about how it's just changing, how all business is getting done, and even the corner store, you know, that didn't used to need to think about technology so much now has to think about how to market differently, how to actually deal with payments differently, how to actually communicate and engage customers differently. Um, and so I just think we're still very early days in the way digital trends are reshaping commerce and we're really excited. We just cover the whole world. We've got emerging markets focus and small business focus and marketplace focus. And, uh, and I think just the, there's just so much need and so much opportunity. We're just really excited to be able to help so many customers uh, capitalize on these opportunities they have. So, uh, so thanks so much. I mean, really enjoyed the discussion and, and great to have a chance to be here. 
Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Unless, Jason, has any uh, random questions to ask you before we let you go? <laughs> no, none for me. I just enjoyed listening. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, Jason, thank you. Really great to spend time with you both. So thanks. Thanks. All right, be well. And now joining me as always after that awesome interview at Certified Financial Planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. My legs are tired because I ran my first 5K yesterday. But other than that, I'm having a great, great Monday down here. Uh, that's that's good, man. Congratulations on that. I mean, listen, that running is hard. And the older you get, it's it's not it doesn't get any easier. I, I tell you, it's uh, it's one of those things you got you got to do it a lot, or else or else it uh, it wears on you. That's well, right now, I'm, I'm I'm running with like an extra 30, 35 pounds right now. So I'm hoping as that goes away, it'll get a little easier. <laughs> well, well, you know, it, uh, hopefully, hopefully that was more. Hopefully that's just more lockdown related. Uh, you know, the fact that we're not able to get out. Uh, as much yeah, as I, I, I can't blame COVID forever. So I got to no. get out and get it done. <laughs> well, Matt, I you know I really enjoyed that interview with Scott. Um, I really enjoyed hearing what Scott had to say, not only about Payoneer, but also about about their their journey to becoming a publicly traded company. I thought you asked a lot of great questions, and, and it was neat just to get that sort of overall landscape uh, in in regard to to the finance space and how fintech is changing the world, how the money is just moving around in all sorts of different ways now. And it doesn't seem like that's going to be, uh, it, it, it seems like that's going to continue to evolve for some time to come. So, so thanks for, thanks for that interview. I know our listeners really enjoyed it. Um, you know, we, we want to, we want to go ahead and kick off this SPAC series, right? We're doing a four-part SPAC series. And in, in what we wanted to do first and foremost in kicking this off is just dive into for a few minutes here, talk about the basics here, the mechanics, what SPACs actually are, what are the advantages, what are the risks. So let's just from the very start here, let's just remind our listeners what the the acronym SPAC actually stands for. Sure. So SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's essentially a company that goes public with no business operations. And the reason it goes public is to raise money in order to acquire a private business and take it to the public markets. To really make a long story short, a SPAC is a way for a company like Payoneer, who we just heard from their CEO, to go public without having to go through the, the traditional IPO process of submitting um, you know, the growth projections and recent earnings and stuff to prospective investors doing an IPO roadshow, going public the traditional way is a process. So a SPAC lets a company go public by merging with a company that already exists and is just sitting on a, a mountain of cash to combine with a new business. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought it was interesting. He used, Scott used, uh, I, know, I know he mentioned Spotify in the interview and it mentioned that as an example of a company that utilized a direct listing, which is a bit different than a SPAC, but similar in the sense that you're trying to figure out a way to do this Less traditionally, right? I mean, we're going going in, in the direction of trying new things, and, and not this traditional way of getting a company to the public markets. And, and you're right. I mean, a, a company going public. I mean, that requires that. That's a big song and dance. I mean, there are a lot of costs, a lot of time that go into that. Uh, prepping a roadshow, getting investors on board, going around and explaining your business, pitching the business more or less to investors. Then there are costs and actually. Going public, and then it's a matter of what they're going to do with the money. So it, it fascinates me this this whole SPAC movement. It's something that really has taken off here recently. And I, I found an, an interesting statistic here: since the start of last year, investors have poured more than one hundred thirty billion dollars 
into SPACs. And so, I mean, this is something that has really taken off in short order. It gets a lot of press, understandably, with the enthusiasm. And, and I do get those advantages. I mean, nothing comes without without its, its, its share of risk, though. I mean, what do you feel like are some of the risks involved with going the SPAC route? Well, we, we forget in given the recent environment that IPOs don't always do well. I mean, we're we're living in what? the age. I know, right? Balderdash. <laughs> we're we're living in the age where uh, you know Airbnb goes public, and the next day it's trading for three times as much. Yeah, um, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. always happen. IPOs go down all the time. You know, the mar- the market's not always going to receive a newly public company well. So that the biggest risk is that the the stock goes down after the merger is completed. Um, there are other risks of SPAC. So when a SPAC goes public. It takes investors' money. Usually, it's ten dollars a share is the par value. It takes that money and puts it in an account. From there, it usually has about two years to find a company to acquire. In that time, that money's just sitting there. So, a big risk is your opportunity cost. What could that money be doing in the meantime? It's instead of just sitting in an escrow account. And yeah, I mean that's just it. You said sitting in an escrow and it's sitting in something where there's there's not a company that's making any money. I mean, right? This right. is uh, maybe there's an exception there, but for the for the most by and large, I mean these these spacs. I mean these blank check companies. I mean this is pre revenue. It's it's nothing other right. than so, just the promise, right? <laughs> in the meantime, you're essentially leaving your money in a savings account. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, at, at zero growth. So that's one big risk. Um, you don't know what you're acquiring. Um, you don't know if you're going to like the business, which I mean, I guess if you don't like the business, the spec ends up buying. You could always just sell your shares, but you know, you're you're giving them a. It's called a blank check company for a reason. You're giving them a blank check to buy whatever they want. Um, another, there are a few big drawbacks to this, but there are some big advantages. I mean, it really does democratize the IPO process. If I mean. Can you imagine? If, look at look at DraftKings stock price now. It's about sixty dollars. It's a, a recent successful SPAC merger. Imagine if you had just gotten to the blank check form of that company at ten dollars a share, and then they ended up taking DraftKings public. So That'd there is pretty sweet, it, you know. And and if that had gone public on the open markets like Airbnb did, retail investors would never have been able to buy at the IPO price. So it kind of does open up the IPO process to everybody. You just have to be willing to really take. You know, roll the dice and and hope that they acquire a company that you like. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it it is you can give it a little bit of time at least and try to get some idea of of perhaps what company that SPAC is going to acquire. And we obviously got some background there with Payoneer, that FTAC Olympus Acquisition Corp. That's going to be the 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 SPAC that will be bringing Payoneer into the fold there. And and I mean, you look at shares of FTAC today uh, that trades as the ticker is FTOC on on the NASDAQ. And those are are trading at $12 a share. But I mean, we fast forward to the middle of the year, they bring Payoneer into the mix there. And uh, all of a sudden, we've got a fintech company that seems like it's growing. It seems like it's doing something right. They've got some pretty reputable customers there. I mean, you know, at least you have something to go on there. And knowing the SPAC that is going to be bringing Payoneer into the fold there, so you can make a little bit more of a calculated, you can take a little bit more of a calculated risk, I guess, in that in that regard. Right. And I mean, if a SPAC doesn't find a deal within that two-year period, investors get their money back. That's It's important to be clear on that. It's not just lost money. Okay. You know, okay. you get your $10 a share back. 
one big risk is that a lot of SPACs that don't have deals, like um, IPOD and IPOF, uh, Chamath's two uh, outstanding SPACs, they trade for big premiums to that. They're trading for, I think, in the neighborhood of 14 to $15 a share, and they don't have a target yet. Yeah. So yeah. if they can't find anything, investors will get $10 back, not the 14 15 they're paying to buy the shares. Yeah. So yeah, be, that's, be that's... wary when you're paying a premium for these things. And I mean, you would be paying that premium based on more than anything, probably just a track record, right? I mean, Shamath has a track record of, of some success here. And so people are probably thinking, hey, it, it's probably worth putting a little money down. I feel like I understand what he's trying to do, the types of company he wants to bring to the markets. I uh, like his investing style, whatever it may be. I mean, that, that track record allows you to make even even more of a, uh, a, a reasonable, reasonably well-informed investment. Right. And you really hit the nail on the head there. A, a pre-deal SPAC is a bet on management, period. There are about 300 SPACs at last count that are in the market waiting for companies to acquire right now. And, you know, 250 or so of them should be ignored. <laughs> you want to find the you want to find the managers whose interests not only not only that they have a good track record, but whose interests really align with yours. Which um, one of the two we're about to talk about in a minute is 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 fits in that category. But in Payoneer's case, the SPAC run by Betsy Cohen, who is a phenomenal track record in the banking space. Um, I mean, she founded her own bank that's very successful. I mean, it, you know, a banking heavyweight. So. You, you're betting on management, plain and simple. And that's why people are willing to pay a premium for some of these, even before they have a deal. One of the recent ones that I've, I one that I own is um, called VG Acquisition, which is Virgin Group's uh, SPAC. They recently announced they're taking 23andMe public. Even, oh, no kidding. Even before they announced that, the SPAC was trading at a pretty decent premium to the $10 a share that people put into it in the first place. The reason is because... Richard Branch is a guy you want to bet on. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a little bit of a track record there. <laughs> historically, it's been a mistake to bet against Richard Branson. So people people were betting that he would find a company to acquire that would deliver long-term shareholder value, and he did. Well, so far, we don't know. It's not completed yet. But it's they've announced the merger agreement. It's still trading as VGAC, which is Virgin, VG Acquisition Corp. Um, but yeah, that's that just... It's a bet on management to find a great deal, and people who have bet on management and who's man- and who are right are, can be really handsomely rewarded. I mentioned DraftKings already. Look at the stocks of uh, well, Virgin Galactic is another one that went public by SPAC. Open Door is one that went public by SPAC. Uh, Penn National Gaming, I think, is one, if I'm not mistaken, or or maybe I'm misspeaking on that one. But there there have been a bunch of really successful SPAC IPOs. Is the point? Um, led by managers with great track records who did it again. Um, and that's what you're trying to find. That's why, um, you know, Chamath is on his fifth and sixth SPAC on the public markets. And people are willing to bet that he's going to keep the streak alive and find something good to acquire. Well, let's dig into a couple of these companies that we were talking about. I mean, I, th- I think that the Payoneer opportunity is really interesting on its own, but we have a couple of other ideas here to talk about. One, which is getting ready to materialize here very soon, and then one that is going to materialize a little bit further down the road. Doesn't have a target yet, but let's start with uh, the one that is going to be materializing here very soon. That's Starboard Value Acquisition, and the ticker there is SVAC. They recently just announced a merger. Uh, talk 
to us about the the company that they'll be bringing into the fold there and and what uh, the market opportunity it'll be focused on is. Yeah, so um, Starboard Value is a a hedge fund. It's managed by Jeff Smith. You know, active one probably the arguably the best activist investor of all time. Um, he's a pop. He's the uh, head of Papa John's board. He helped them when they were kind of failing. Oh. Um, just that was one of his successful recent ones. But they have a great track record of value investments. That's why I bought the shares of this back before they had this deal announced. Um, they just announced a deal with Sixterra, which is the number three data center operator in the in the U.S. It will be the number three in the public markets. It is the biggest private data center operator. Um, they have 61 data centers located all around the world. They're profitable. They may um, generated almost $700 million in revenue in 2020. Um, the deal values them at $3.4 billion, including the $650 million in cash they're getting as part of the deal, um, which, as, we, as I mentioned in the Payoneer interview a minute ago, growth takes money. Um, that's one of the biggest draws for companies is you can raise more growth capital in a SPAC deal than you could in a traditional IPO. Um, generally, companies don't sell you know 30 to 40% of their shares in a traditional IPO, um, but you can raise capital that's equivalent to that much of your, of your stock in a, a SPAC. I mentioned $3.4 billion valuation. They're going to have $650 million in cash to play with. Um, so they're if you're not familiar with Sixterra, they formed. They, if you, do you remember a company called CenturyLink? Um, I, I do remember CenturyLink, and I also remember Digital Realty Trust, which you had mentioned, because I think that's one you've called out on the yeah, show here so, before. That's a real. That's well, a REIT in the same space. Right? Correct. So Digital yeah. Realty and Equinix are the two big ones in the space. Um, Sixterra will be number three. Sixterra was formed from the data center assets of CenturyLink, which was a telecom provider. So that's where it came from. If anyone was wondering that. Um, the data center business has a ton of growth catalysts, as, as the, the AI man, Jason, can tell you. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of data-heavy technologies that are you know, exploding right now. Um, you know, the long-tailed rollout of 5G is going to make it easier for you know, mass volumes of data to be transmitted from connected devices. It's a huge in-demand market right now, and Sixterra really wants to grow into it. They've, they've been uh, independent of CenturyLink for just a few years. They're using this deal to really grow into it. And because it's really a value investment, it's not one of these big high-profile growth investments like when they took DraftKings public. It's not trading at a giant premium. I want to say it's like about ten fifty a share right now instead of ten dollars for SVAC. Um, so it's a great. He um, they acquired it because it's a long-term value play in the data center space. Huge growth market. Look at the look at say a ten-year total return chart of digital realty. It's been a fantastic investment for people who get into these um, the data center space in, in winning operators. Um, so it could be a, another um, you know an alternative to the big the big guns in the data center space, if you will. Um, so I bought that one before it went. They announced the merger agreement, and I am not planning on selling. I love this acquisition, and now that it, it didn't really spike to a big premium, I might buy even more. Well, there you go. And yeah, I mean, to your point there, looking at the chart for digital realty, I mean, it's another one of those, it, you, may not, you may not see it immediately in the near term. It's, it's one of those, I mean, it's a REIT, high yield. The longer you own it, the more sense it makes. Um, and, and I can absolutely see the opportunity there. I think you keyed in on a lot of important um, 
A lot of important trends there in, I mean, just the, the rollout of 5G in general, the build out of the infrastructure and all of these different, uh, all of these different capabilities that we're going to gain from it and internet of things and artificial intelligence and AR and VR and just so many different, uh, so many different capabilities that will really be enhanced by this. And, and you're right, it, it's going to require a lot of data moving back and forth. And that's, that's really, uh, I think in, in, in strikes me as, as certainly a market opportunity that, that should be growing here in the coming years. And so that merger has been completed then, is, is what you're saying. Well, Sixterra is now actually a part of that. that they, they've, they've announced the merger. It still has to be, um, when a SPAC announces a merger, this is a very good question. Um, it, it needs to be approved by the board of directors before it is announced. But before it is completed, it needs to be, go through regulatory approval and it needs to be approved by the, the SPAC's shareholders. So that's another kind of fail-safe if you buy a SPAC pre-deal. If the shareholders just don't like the acquisition target at all, let's say this the stock plunges to 5 or $6 after the acquisition target comes out, shareholders can vote the deal down. Um, so it, it doesn't happen often. but um, So it, it, it is subject to a few closing conditions. At some point, the ticker symbol will be CYXT when the deal is done, Sixtera Technologies. But for now, it still trades as Starboard Value Acquisition, SVAC. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's talk about one that doesn't have anything in the hopper right now, but it sounds like they are on the hunt, at least. Uh, Simon Property Acquisition. The ticker there today is SPGS. Um, I've heard you talking a lot about Simon before on, on our show here, Matt. I, I know that you're a big fan of Simon Properties Group. Um, tell us a little bit about Simon Property Acquisition and where you think they may be looking. So yes, uh, Simon Property Group, you know, the leading mall operator in the, in the, in the world, um, recently completed a SPAC IPO because it's 2021. Why not? You know? Hey, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, every, it's, why are so many of these companies... Like like Simon issuing SPACs, the answer is the economics are fantastic if it works out. Um, Simon's only real contribution to this deal is I think they paid about $5 million to buy warrants in the SPAC that are essentially options. If the deal works out, Simon will own 20% of the SPAC shares for free, essentially. Plus, we'll have about 5 million warrants to buy more stock if it does well for a, a contribution of $5 million. So if a SPAC does well, if they can find a target that the market really receives well, Simon can make you know hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for very little risk. Um, so great economics. They recently went public, um, $10 IPO price. Like most SPACs, what they're going to acquire is very vague at this point. Um, SPACs usually, when they before they have a deal, they'll you know issue a statement, a registration statement. It'll say kind of what they're targeting. Um, they are targeting. Let me get this right: a disruptive retail, hospitality, entertainment, or real estate business. That could be almost anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah and, and, and they they they're vague on purpose because it gives them a lot of options. Um, they don't want to limit themselves and say, "Oh, we're going to acquire a fintech provider that focuses on the real estate industry," because that's a very narrow scope. They're gonna they they give themselves options. I like this one. We don't know what they're buying yet. Simon has a fantastic track record when it comes to capital allocation, especially recently. Um, think of if you've been to a Simon Mall, they're a class in their own. 
they Simon has invested heavily in his properties in the right way to keep in, in, in ways that are keeping them full no matter what e-commerce is doing. You know that Simon's base rent actually went up in 2020? Wow. Um, which is pretty remarkable for a, for a mall. It really is. Um, they're adding things like entertainment venues, hotels. They have a partnership with Marriott to put hotels in some of their malls. Um, the mall in Baltimore has a Medieval Times in it um, that attracts people there. There's a, a casino attached to that mall. Maryland Live is in that mall. Um, so th- it's stuff that's going to keep people coming to malls regardless of what the, what the e-commerce is doing. Recently, Simon has done a great job of making smart acquisitions. They bought uh, JCPenney out of bankruptcy. They bought Forever 21 out of bankruptcy. Their yeah. return on Forever 21 so far has been about half of what they paid for it oh, in, wow. less, in less than a year. Man. Their share of the profits that's generated since they brought it out of bankruptcy has been about half of their cost basis. That's a pretty impressive investment. They bought uh, Aeropostale a few years ago, and they say that's been a very profitable investment. So they have a good track record of acquiring struggling retail businesses at a great value. Now, they're not limiting themselves to a struggling retail business, which I think is why they wanted to do this so they can really branch out. I mean, as a mall operator, they really can't make a great shareholder case to acquire, say, a fintech provider. Um, But as a standalone SPAC, they could certainly make that case. Um, So they want to give themselves a little more options to put their great track record to work. Um, And like I said, a SPAC is a bet on management. David Simon, the CEO of Simon Property Group, is the SPAC's chairman. Eli Simon, his son, is the SPAC's CEO. And when you look at a SPAC, look deeper into the board members if you're not totally sold on the management. It includes the CFO of a company called Rent the Runway, which my wife absolutely loves. They're, they're oh, the my that, wife. Yeah, my wife likes it. Likes that one, too. Yeah, so this, their CFO is one of the uh, Simon Property Acquisitions board members. Um, as well as the founder of a company called Graduate Hotels. We have a graduate hotel in Columbia um, down here. It's a pre- an up-and-coming, really trendy hotel chain. Really good. So they might be targeting something on the hospitality side. The, the, the board members can usually give you some clues as to where they might might be looking. So I like this I like this one. It's, it's still a risk. They have two years to find their, their target. They just recently went public. I want, within the past month, this SPAC was created. Um, it's still trading for pretty close to its IPO price of, of $10 a unit. Um, another int- important point, uh, when a SPAC first goes public, it trades as a unit, not as a share. A gotcha. unit includes one common share plus a piece of a warrant to buy another share. Um, after 52 days on the public market, don't ask me why it's 52, it just is. Um, after 52 days, the common shares and the warrants will trade separately. So you might need to add a U after the ticker symbol right now if you want to take a look at it is kind of the point there. But last I checked, uh, this one was trading for about ten fifty a share. So it's not a huge premium. Um, I think Simon's recent track record speaks for itself. I think they're going to emerge from the pandemic a stronger company than they went in. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do with kind of a, with a, a you know, a blank check like we're giving them with this company. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a... Uh... Yeah, that, that's definitely one, one to keep an eye on here in the, in the coming year. I think that's all really great stuff, Matt. Um, 
and listen, I, I think that's going to do it for us this week. We've really we've really gone through a lot of great stuff. And, and the neat thing about this, as we mentioned, it's going to be a four-part series here over the next four Mondays for our financial show. Uh, we'll be digging into SPACs. We'll have some more fun interviews along the way. Uh, we'll be talking more about uh, SPACs out there that we like, that Matt likes, things uh, that you need to have on your radar. Um, but I think that's going to wrap it up for us this week, Matt. So, hey, listen, thanks so much for, for taking the time to dig into this stuff. Thanks for the great interview there with Scott. Um, just a terrific week. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I dig into the SPAC stuff all day. And um, from the questions <laughs> I, I've, I've seen, um, it, it looks like people want me to. So I'm going to keep at it. Well, well, we'll uh, we're really looking forward to this series here for the next four weeks. So I hope everybody enjoys it. Uh, remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 